one of the appeals of Christianity is, is its wide applicability. You know? So the gospel message on the one hand, it, it really is as simple as God saves sinners, but it's as complex as an 80,000 uh, word doctrinal dissertation and everything in between. Uh, the fourth century church father Jerome said of the scriptures that the scriptures are shallow enough that they bid an infant to come and drink without fear of drowning, but deep enough where theologians can swim and never touch the bottom. Now, if, if you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian for a while, I, I think you can appreciate the, the, just the robustness of God's Word for our lives, right? And if, and if you're not a Christian, I hope that you can find that appealing as well. Because if, if for no other reason, because life requires something that's as robust as that. The Bible is not a, a, a collection of simple stories and moral narratives that, that might bore you, nor is it a collection of esoteric uh, oracles and strange prophecies. It's actually a combination of both. It's a combination of the simple and the complex because our lives are that way. Our lives, on the one hand, have a simplicity to it, but there's also a complexity to it, and you need something that can address both of those. Uh, one of the first psychologists in America, William James, he taught at Harvard University. He said that life is, is, is nothing but a, uh, a blooming, buzzing confusion. And what James was getting at is that Sometimes in life, the, the good guys are the good guys. The bad guys are the bad guys. Up is up and down is down. But sometimes in life, the good guys are bad, and the bad guys are good, and up and down is left and right. Life is a mixture of things that make sense and don't make sense, things that ought to be and things that aren't. And whatever it is you build your life upon, if it, if it can't answer those, let alone account for those, life's going to be nothing but a blooming, buzzing confusion is what James was getting at. That life is this simplicity and complexity all rolled into one, and if you build your life on something that can't even account for it or even address it, your only options are to kind of put your head in a hole in the ground or to try and escape the world around us. Or you, you get pushed into the, by the pressures of life into behaviors that it seem like they'll give you relief but are actually self-destructive. So when you look around our culture, it, it's really not a surprise that addictive behaviors are just endemic, that, that escapist mentalities, I just, I just want to put in my 40 hours and escape to my world of whether it's sports or magazines or movies or entertainments or, or whatever it is, is everywhere. Because so often people build their lives on a foundation that cannot account for this complexity of life when we feel that it should be simpler than this. Well, Christianity not just has uh, accounts for that, Christianity has answers for that. And every now and again, as we study through God's Word, we bump up against things and we realize, wow, we're tapping into something that, that's really huge. We're tapping into this, this, this tension of simplicity and complexity in life. Now, uh, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks as we've been studying through the book of 1 Samuel, I can imagine that you are experiencing, if you were paying attention, a little bit of this tension of what, something, we're bumping up against something that seems almost contradictory, and that is uh, Israel's request, their rebellious request for a king. Um, 
think about a few weeks ago, we talked about from 1 Samuel chapter 8, it was very clear from some passages, particularly from the Old Testament, the, the, the Pentateuch, that God anticipated the rise of the monarchy in Israel and actually gave instructions of how the king and the people were supposed to uh, relate to one another. But then in, Acts, excuse me, in Samuel 9 and 10, you almost got the exact opposite response as God was almost displeased by the fact that these developments were occurring amongst his people. So if you're looking at those chapters and you're paying attention, you have to ask yourself, what's going on here? Which is it? Does God want the kingdom or does he not, doesn't want the kingdom? So on one hand, this concept of the kingdom is huge in redemptive history. So redemptive history is God's plan to rescue all of humanity through history. The concept of kingdom is everywhere. It's huge in the New Testament. Jesus begins his public ministry by proclaiming the kingdom. Jesus is called the king of kings. All through the book of Revelation, the kingdom of God is mentioned numerous times. Especially if you go into the Old Testament, the kingdom's everywhere. Particularly in the, the height, the zenith of the kingdoms of, of David and his son Solomon. This brief period of time, their kingdom was, was, a, was a, a kind of a pointer, a foreshadowing of what God's intention was always to be for all the universe. Think about it. There was a prosperity unknown to God's people ever before. All of the people of God were prospering. The enemies of God were all finally subdued. There were, the nations were coming to Jerusalem to be blessed. The temple of God, which symbolizes his presence, was there. The king, after God's own heart, sat on the throne, ruling on behalf of the Lord. Well, that's a picture of what heaven's supposed to be like. God's people flourishing and blessed. Their enemies, death and sorrow are no more. All the nations came to be blessed. God's king, being Jesus Christ, sitting on the throne. The only difference is there's no temple anymore because God's presence is everywhere. So this historical reality of the kingdom in the Old Testament was to remind people and point them to, this is the way it's supposed to be. Blurry as it was, imperfect as it was, it was a huge deal. So the kingdom is all throughout. In other words, you, you, you can't understand the Bible the way we understand it without the concept of kingdom. So it's natural that when we get to Samuel, the obvious question is, if the kingdom is such an integral part of God's overall plan, what's the deal with this tension? Does God want the kingdom? Does God not want the kingdom? Right? So just for this morning... I want to step out of the stream of 1 Samuel for this Sunday, and, and um, uh, Ben Warner, he's a member of our congregation and a chaplain with the Marines at Pendleton, he'll pick up our study next week in 1 Samuel chapter 11, but because we bumped up against an issue, and, and I know some of you are, are really paying attention, I anticipated some people are going to ask this question, why this tension? Does God want the kingdom or not? And in a sense, the larger question is, that's being asked is, how does God's sovereignty intersect with human choices? How do those two work together? Because that's so much of our lives. You see, the rise of the monarchy in Israel is a perfect time to talk about this issue because it, it, it is the, the providence and plans of God colliding with the desires and demands of people. It is this mixture of imperfect faith on God's people's part with foreordained realities that God has already established. And they come crashing together, and it makes a perfect opportunity just to stop once and say, how does this, this work together? 
So, so this is a, a perfect illustration of why we wrote the three-by-three three cards. If you're visiting with us today, we don't normally jump into the real deep end of Scripture like this. We're talking the Marianas Trench of issues here in the Christian faith, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. We're not always there, but we want to address them when they actually come up in Scripture because our lives collide with those issues, whether we know it or not. And after the first service, because of the sensitivity or the, the delicacy of this topic, I said, I'm going to be in the fireside room if anyone's got questions. And man, we had a big round circle of people going at, thinking about this issue. And a lot of it I couldn't talk about in a sermon because it's not the format, but we recognize that when Scripture addresses things, we want to at least address them too, because Scripture is wide enough and deep enough to address these issues. So that's what we're going to do. And because this issue is huge, I'm going to try and... Um, formulate it by, by, by forming the question two ways that are very similar to one another, that when this issue comes up, it's usually expressed in this one of two ways of this question, but we're going to spend the majority of our time focusing on what does the Bible actually teach on that topic. Yep, make sense? Good. We're good? All right. So we're going to pray and ask God to bless the teaching of his word because we really need it on this particular topic. All right. Father, we thank you for your word is rich. Like Jerome says, it's so rich that we can just be satisfied with, the, with the, the, the shallower end things and not fear of drowning, but so deep that we can plunge in and never reach the bottom. And Lord, we've been blessed through our study of 1 Samuel, but this issue comes to the surface and we want to deal with it well. We want to think wisely about the faith that we live every day. Would you bless the teaching of your word, Father? In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. So the first question gets framed like this. If God's sovereign and his plans are established, then what difference does it make how we respond, right? Makes sense. It seems like a normal question to ask. If God is sovereign and his plans are already established, what difference does it make how we respond to him, right? So the first thing we need to do is we need to make sure God's word dictates what we believe about him. So let's go to scripture. Does scripture teach that God is this sovereign being? And I think you'll find that it does. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. And these are going to be on the screens behind me. We're going to do a lot of jumping around today. They're going to be on the screens behind me, but you can write them down for your notes. Paul writing to the Ephesians says this in Ephesians 1.11, having been predestined according to the purposes of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. So Paul, just in this one verse, he loads on about five of these words, predestined, purposes, all things, his will, his counsel. Paul is being very clear with these Ephesian believers, who if you remember from our study of the book, were facing persecution and uncertainty. God comforts them by appeal, or excuse me, Paul comforts them by appealing to the sovereignty of God in knowing all things, including their own salvation. And their own salvation was a part of God's larger plan of all things that are getting worked out according to the counsel of his will. So that's what Paul says to the Ephesians. In the book of Psalms, the psalmist proclaims that God knows all of our days even before we're born. It's Psalm 139 and 16. The psalmist writes, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. So the psalmist says, look, in your book, all my days were accounted for. They were all written before one even came to pass. But the Bible doesn't teach us just individual lives that God has understanding and sovereignty over, but God has sovereignty over kingdoms and empires and nations as well. Look at Acts 17. 
Luke writes in verse 26, And he, God, made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And then listen to this section. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke is writing uh, to Theophilus, the first recipient of the book of Acts, and he's saying, look, God made from one man every nation to live on the face of this planet. And then drops this bombshell, and God determined their allotted periods. So you, Rome, you'll, you'll get maybe 600 years. Persia, I'll give you three. U.S., who knows? That he gives to the nations their allotted periods and their dwelling places of where they'll be. That's amazing that God's sovereignty extends not over the individual details of individual lives, but nations and empires. So the Bible is really clear. This is just three verses, mind you. We could, we could have just a ton more of verses that, to talk about this, but just these three verses show very clearly that God is sovereign over the affairs of life. Now, I, I hope this is reassuring to you. It's reassuring to me. I really like the fact that, that God is not winging this whole thing. God is not, God's not spitballing it or making things up as we go along. He's not like so many either political or civic or corporate leaders kind of finding out where the winds are going and changing his plans accordingly. The Bible's clear. He knows the beginning and he knows the end and he brings about his plans and purposes towards those ends. This brings a lot of reassurance. Now, if, if you are enjoying the blessings of God, that ought to cultivate within you a deep sense of gratitude. God, you, all things you've been given to me, my health, my life, my opportunities, my family, what, all those things are gifts from you. But, you know, even if you are in a time of struggle and difficulty, this should cultivate in you a sense of confidence that they won't overtake and overwhelm you because tied in with God's sovereignty is His goodness. This is a tough situation, Lord, but I know you are good as well as sovereign and I can entrust my soul to you here because you oversee all the affairs. As a matter of fact, if you're a mom or dad, you understand this, the importance of this doctrine. When your kids were young and they were afraid, and maybe it was a bad storm or something scary outside, outside their room, in the room, whatever it might be. What is it that you say to your child to comfort them? Honey, sweetie, it's okay. Everything will be all right. Dad's in control. You ever say that? You ever say, oh, don't worry, honey. Mom's in control. Mom's got it. Even though you have no idea what you're going to do, that's what you say to them because you know when they know things are in control, that mom and dad can control things, it's going to be okay, right? And it brings comfort to them. Now, some people, though, they, they hear this, this doctrine of God's sovereignty and they conclude from this then, well, if God is sovereign, if, if everything's in control, that, 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 that he's got it, why, do, why does it matter how I behave and my response anyway? What difference does any of my actions make? It's all meaningless, they conclude. You might have heard people say things like that. If God is sovereign and everything's been taken care of, what difference does it make what I do? And here it is. Because those people tend to forget, God uses means to accomplish his purposes. God always uses means to accomplish his purposes. Let me illustrate that to you briefly. 
God intended to bring salvation to many young women who were uh, imprisoned in the Ravensbrück concentration camp in the 40s. God intended to bring salvation to many of these young ladies. What he needed, however, was another young lady that he sent to this woman's concentration camp who knew the gospel, was bold enough to share the gospel, but in order to do that, he also needed an environment where that could take place. And so in God's sovereignty, this young Dutch girl, who her and her family doing great work smuggling Jews away from the Nazi war machine, the Ten Booms, gets arrested. And the whole family gets scattered and sent to different concentration camps. A few of them are released. But Corey ends up in Ravensbrook. And Corey starts to, Corey gets placed in a barracks so flea infested that the guards won't do their routine checks to see what's going on in there. So Corey Tenboom has the freedom and the knowledge to share the gospel undisturbed, proclaiming the Christ to these women in this barracks. And many of them came to know Jesus Christ as a result. Now, Corey could have just said, well, Lord, if you're sovereign, then I don't need to open my mouth. These women will somehow come to know the gospel. Maybe the fleas will orient themselves and they'll see the John 3, 16. I don't know. I don't have to do part of this. Corey could have also said, God, why? Wasn't it good? Weren't we doing good things? We were smuggling Jews away from the Nazis. Isn't it good for me to be with my family? But, you know, in her book, Hiding Place, you have to read it or just watch the movie if you're not a book reader. Corey reveals something that's so amazing and a trust and sovereignty. He says, yes, it is good that my family stayed together. Yes, it was good that we were smuggling Jews away from the Nazi war machine. But in God's providence in ways I cannot yet understand, it was actually better for my family and I to be separated. And that's hard, right? In our culture where family is so important, she understood, oh, wait a minute, I'm a part of a family bigger than this biological unit. I'm in this thing called the family of God that God is redeeming from, hum- from humanity, but people for his own sake. And though it was good to be with my family, it was better for us to be separated. And though it was good we were smuggling Jews out of the Nazi war machine, it was better in your plans that I end up in this particular barracks, in this particular concentration camp. And while it was good, I, I understood goodness. It was a limited perspective, and she says, I really began to understand goodness has to take in God's perspective. And that's the decision and metric of what is actually good. She writes in her poem, and she kinda, you can hear her heart in this poem. It's called the tapestry poem. Maybe you've even heard it. She writes this. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaves steadily. Oftentimes he weaves with sorrow, and I in foolish pride... Forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. I'm so glad we have people in our heritage that did not look at the sovereignty of God and and, and make the mistake of the determinist and say, "What, what difference does it make what I do? God's got it all planned out. My actions are meaningless. No. Corey Ten Boon understood that God's sovereignty in all affairs is not a reason to stop taking action. She understood that God's sovereignty is the foundation that gives any sense or meaning to the actions she took. 
Because God was sovereign and God was good. It didn't, she could do what she was going to do, not knowing what the outcome was, trusting that it would work out because God's plans are going to come to pass, even in a difficult situation like a Nazi concentration camp. So that, that's the first form of the question. Let's look at the second question. It's very similar to the first, but it goes on the flip side. It goes something like this. If our actions and choices are real, then in what way is God sovereign and his plans firmly established? You see, this is, we don't have to spend much time on this question because it's really the same question as before, but just the flipped angle coming from a different perspective. You see, if the... Um, First question errs by saying God knows too much and does too much. This question errs by saying God knows too little and does too little. See the difference there. The first question implies that God doesn't really need us. The second question implies we don't really need Him. The first question only sees God's, God's sovereignty and nothing else. The second question only sees God's, excuse me, human choice and nothing else. But both questions wrestle with the difficulty of how to reconcile these two seemingly, seemingly contradictory things, that God is sovereign, but human choices are real and we're responsible for them. You say, how does that work? Well, we just have to look briefly at what the Bible actually teaches. And the Bible actually teaches this as a reality. The Bible teaches that both God is sovereign and human choice is real. And again, we want Scripture to establish this. And so we're going to look at Genesis chapter 45 and verse 7. Now let me set up the scene for you if you're not familiar. This is the end of the book of Genesis. Joseph is now speaking. He's speaking to his brothers who had sold him into slavery. And Joseph, by God's grace and design, rose to the ranks to be second only to Potiphar himself, excuse me, to Pharaoh himself in all of Egypt. He was in charge of making sure Egypt survived the famine. And here his brothers come who years and years earlier sold him into slavery. They have no idea that it's his, their brother they sold into slavery. And he finally does the big reveal to them in chapter 45. You can imagine the fear that they had. But this is what Joseph says in Genesis 45 verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you, many survivors. This is interesting. In Genesis 45, Joseph says to his brothers, and God sent me before you. But if you know the narrative in Genesis 37, starting in verse 27, God wasn't a part of it at all. At least that's what it seems. It was the brothers choosing either to kill Joseph or when Judah saw the caravan coming to go to Egypt, he said, let's not kill our brother. What would that profit us? Let's sell him to the caravan that's going to Egypt. God didn't do anything, at least in the narrative there in Genesis 37. What Joseph is interpreting is your choices that you freely and willingly and wickedly made was actually part of God's sovereign plan to deliver the nation of Israel. That's what happened. At the time, there was no nation. It was just a family. It was Jacob and his, and his sons. But through coming to Egypt, they would grow into become the nation of Israel. And Joseph interprets the events and says, you did this, but actually it was God that did this. Look at Genesis 50, verse 20, same situation, it's still Joseph engaging with his brothers, and he says to them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I'm sure Joseph, like Corey Tenboom, would have thought, it was good for me to be with my father. It was good for me to be with my family. But he realized it was better for me to be sold into slavery. It was better for me to be imprisoned unfairly. It was better for me to be accused and have my integrity challenged because ultimately it's God's plan that determines what actually is good, not my own. So we see that there. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Let's go to the New Testament. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And here it comes. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now focus. Many as were appointed. Who's doing the appointing? We know from Scripture that was God appointing them. As many as were appointed to eternal life, but what did they do? They chose to believe. See, so God's working, and men and women are making choices, real choices in these circumstances. These are just a few of the scriptures that are all over the Old and New Testament that show that God and man are working together, God's sovereignty, and men and women making real choices. And they don't fall on the crash in the ditch of the determinist who says, well, if God's got it all planned out, why bother? They also don't crash in the ditch of of what's called uh, open theism, that that God doesn't know the future. God's not sovereign. He's he's actually making this up as we go along. And so our role is we got to help him out as much as we can. See, the, The Bible doesn't crash in any one of those ditches. That there's this beautiful tension that the Bible teaches that God is sovereign, but our, our actions are real and are responsible for our choices. Let me just read two verses that, that show this beautiful collaboration working together. Number one is in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 12. Joab, the leader of the army of God's people, is in a, in a, in a, in a very difficult situation, surrounded by their enemies, has no idea what's going to happen, how they're going to survive this, and he says this, Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of, God, of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. I love this. It wasn't, well, the Lord's going to do what seems good to him, so I'll forget it. We're just, we're done here. And it wasn't just a kind of moral, we can do this, we can do this. It was both the same thing. Be of good courage. We've got action to take, and the Lord will do what is good that he sees fit. We see this again in Acts chapter 18 in the New Testament, verses 9 and 10. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. Here's what's interesting about that. This is on the very beginning of Paul's ministry to the Mediterranean planting churches, particularly the church at Corinth. He would spend 18 months in this city. And prior, at this moment, there aren't Christians in Corinth. And he says, I have many people. You need to preach the gospel, Paul. I have many people. You won't be harmed because the reality is by the preaching of the gospel that you do, these people will come to believe that I've appointed to eternal life and you will not be harmed. And he has a fruitful 18-month ministry by which the churches of Corinth get planted and flourish. We see again this combination of God's sovereignty, his sovereign plans, and the action of his servant saying, I'm going to act. Because they're, they're, I don't want to be the determinist who gives up. I don't want to be the open theist who, who freaks out and, and, and thinks it's all about me. I want to rest in the sovereignty of God as he works through the actions of his people. 
Now, um, I'm not one that quotes long illustrations, but I really want to read this because I think um, this theologian did a great job of trying to capture the essence. All analogies fall apart, I grant you that, but this one's kind of helpful. Wayne Grudem writes this in his Systematic Theology, the analogy of an author writing a play may help us grasp how both aspects can be true. In the Shakespearean play Macbeth, the character Macbeth murders King Duncan. Now we may ask, who killed King Duncan? On one level, the correct answer is Macbeth. Within the play, he carried out the murder, and he is rightly to blame for it. But on another level, a correct answer to the question, who killed King Duncan, would be William Shakespeare caused his death. After all, he wrote the play, he created all the characters in it, and he wrote the part where Macbeth killed King Duncan. It would not be correct to say that because Macbeth killed King Duncan, William Shakespeare did not somehow cause his death, nor would it be correct to say that because William Shakespeare caused King Duncan's death, Macbeth did not kill him. Both are true. On the level of the characters in the play, Macbeth fully, 100%, caused King Duncan's death. But on the level of the creator of the play, William Shakespeare, he fully, 100%, caused King Duncan's death. In a similar fashion, we can understand that God fully causes things in one way as the creator, and we fully cause things in another way as creatures. Of course, characters in a play are not real persons, they are fictional characters. But God is infinitely greater and wiser than we are. While we can only create fictional and, uh, characters in a play, our, our, our almighty God has created us as real persons who make willing choices. To say that God could not make a world in which he somehow causes us to make willing choices is limiting the power of God. It seems also to deny a large number of the passages of Scripture. So let's bring this back to our study of 1 Samuel and the issue of the kingdom. God's plan was always to bring the kingdom. It was, for a very brief moment, blurry as it was, a picture of what he intended all of creation to live like under his good and sovereign rule. But the people, his people, kept making bad choices that were completely contrary to what God had desired for them. And yet, even still, God brought about his intended plan. If we're going to be consistent, we actually have to say God accounted for the people's bad choices, and he even used that to the furtherance of his purposes. One theologian wrote this as we begin to conclude. The failure of the Israelite kingdom, in part, created, I like this, created an expectancy, a hope in the people of a king and a coming kingdom of a different kind, the Messiah and the kingdom of God. So, so in other words, God used the, the, the Hebrews' short-sighted, horribly short-sighted choices by allowing their failures to create in them a deeper yearning for God's true purposes and plans. Okay, so, so what's the, what, how do we put that in our lunchbox? If you're a Christian, in other words, God will allow the failures of your life, He will allow the, the things in your life to, to push you to conform you to be more like Jesus. Even if you make bad choices, choices out of the, what He would want for you, and you make those choices, He redeems those by allowing you to see that those choices, those things did not conf- that, that don't fill you up. In the same way, to a, if you're not a Christian, in God's mercy, He allows 
He allows us to not be fulfilled by the things of this life, not because He's not a loving God, but because He wants us to recognize that the things of this life ultimately don't fill us up. We can pursue and pursue and pursue, and it is God's act of mercy to allow us to not be fulfilled so that we will continue searching for the thing that ultimately fulfills us. Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis said this, If the things of this life do not fill you, perhaps it is because you were not made for the things of this life. And just as the kingdom, it was always God's plan, but the people, their hearts were in the wrong place. They acted contrary to God. He gave them the kingdom. It was always His plan, but it allowed it to be a failure to them so that it would build with them an expectancy of God's true kingdom. In the same way, even if we make choices that are real and we're responsible for that, that don't accomplish anything that might seem good, God allows that to build within us a realization that we're not fulfilled by the things of this life and we're not in control, and builds within us a desire for God's true plans. As I said at the beginning, Christianity swims in both the deep end and the shallow end, and a lot of times it is just the simple gospel, God saves sinners, that's enough. But a lot of times in those three words, there's a world of questions and concerns and definitions and worldviews that also matter. And so sometimes we have to take the 80,000-word treatise to think about it. But as a church community, we want to be both the kinds of people for God's glory and the good of the people He wants to build up and draw to our church, to be the kind of people that aren't afraid to go swimming in the Marianas Trents, and the kind of people that love hanging out in the Lazy River as well. And we want to deal with them as we see Scripture dealing with them as well. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, wow, Lord, just diving in for just a short 30, 40 minutes wrapping our minds, attempting to wrap our minds around your sovereignty, and, and the fact that you give us the ability to make real choices has really been stretching to our minds. Father, we come to the conclusion that we want to live with faith in you, trusting in both your sovereignty and goodness, and not giving up as if life were meaningless. Far from it, your sovereignty fuses life with meaning. Help us to act in faith as we saw in your word. For your glory and the good of your people, we pray. Amen. This message titled Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility was given by Pastor Rick Rodier at Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. This message is part of a series from the book of 1 Samuel. For more information and resources from Christ Community, please visit us at www.ccclh.org.